This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Hollywood special effects legend Douglas Trumbull died today at age 79. I spoke with him in 2018 to celebrate the 50th anniversary of 2001 A Space Odyssey, as well as his memories of close encounters of the third kind and Blade Runner. This is a really big treat. We are here with Hollywood special effects legend Douglas Trumbull, who's just in town for a Smithsonian 50th anniversary screening of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us, Mr. Trumbull. My pleasure to be here. Um, I, I, was, I have so much I want to ask you about uh, 2001, but, but first, um, a lot of our listeners might not even be aware of the fact that, you know, your dad, Donald, did the visual effects for Wizard of Oz and a bunch of... Um, t- take me back to the beginning, like, were, as a kid. Do you remember, you know, did he show you models, take you to studio lot tours, or what was that like growing up with him as a dad? Well, it was very normal, because by the time I was born, he was out of the movie industry, I never went to studios with him. He didn't really seem to think very much of it, and it wasn't very present in my life. So I, I learned about it much later. How, how, when did that happen then? How did you get bit by the bug if it wasn't through your pops? Well, I don't think I was really bit by the bug, in, in, except that uh, I went through school like any normal person, and uh, I was a young artist, and uh, I grew up you know, watching uh, you know, Disney Sunday night shows and seeing how... Uh, uh, you know, Disneyland was being built and seeing all these documentaries that uh, Walt Disney was doing about animation and the multiplane camera. I was kind of fascinated with all that, but I had no inkling at all that I would be in the movie industry ever. So when I uh, graduated from school, my portfolio as an artist was filled with spaceships and alien planets because I was very interested in science fiction. <laughs> And that led to me getting a job at a company called Graphic Films in Hollywood that was doing space films for NASA and the Air Force about the Apollo program and the Mercury and Gemini programs. And uh, we got a job to do a, a movie for the New York World's Fair called To the Moon and Beyond, which I worked on. Nice. When I was like 21 or 22. <laughs> and uh, Kubrick and Clark saw that movie at the expo and contacted Graphic Films to see if we could help with the preliminary design and development of 2001. And that led to me getting a job working directly with Kubrick and moving my family to London, or near London, to work on the movie. That's so amazing. So that was, working for Kubrick was my film school. That was really where my film experience really began. <laughs> that's the best film school you could go to. Are you kidding me? Uh, yeah. That's great. Well, I mean, we here in D.C. have a, a huge connection, as you know, to the, the 50th anniversary here because it premiered, in world premiere in D.C. at the historic Uptown Theater. Did you, did you go to that screening? I wasn't at the Uptown, no. I wasn't even invited. I was living in L.A. 
Uh, so I saw it at the Warner Hollywood Theater where it p- premiered there. Yeah. What What do you remember from when you actually went and saw it with an audience for the first time? Were people just, were, was it mixed reaction? Were people's minds just blown? They, they didn't know, because they'd even take in what they had just seen? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I thought the reaction was really good. Yeah. My reaction was extremely positive because I had never seen the film finished. Yeah, yeah. That was the first screening for me. And uh, I thought it was everything I had hoped it to be. And. I was really glad to see that the movie actually got tremendous traction in spite of the fact that early reviewers and early New Yorkers particularly didn't understand the film at all and thought it was very lethargic and slow and they just didn't understand what Kubrick was trying to do. And um, yet the young audience of the day really got it and really liked the trippiness of it and the ideas behind it and extraterrestrial contact and super intelligence and artificial intelligence and all the themes in the movie and uh i think it took about a month for that to really kick in uh particularly when a guy at mgm rebranded the movie as the ultimate trip (laughs) and people started looking at it with new eyes and saying wow you know we're not getting this kind of thing with regular cowboy movies or love stories or westerns or cop chase thrillers and they saw a new genre being born yeah, very trippy uh, in more ways than one. A nice trip. Um, so, but you guys, I mean, you, you kind of alluded to it. You guys, you and Kubrick and the movie, you guys predicted a lot of technology that has that has come true. I mean, they'd have they have video conferencing, sort of like well before Skype. I mean, how nine thousand? Yep. What is he if not you know AI and Siri and Google Home and yeah. <laughs> um, Alexa, all that stuff? Um, did you guys have any? I mean, is is it crazy to 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 you know look back and and experience all these things? You know watching them come out in real life and look back and say, wow, how did we think of that that long ago? (laughs) Well, uh, there were a lot of really talented and creative uh, people working as consultants on the movie who worked with NASA and worked with major corporations and were advising Kubrick and where they thought things were going to be going and where IBM thought computers would be going. And that was a lot of really intelligent, thoughtful ideas in the movie. Um, and particularly about artificial intelligence and where it was heading. And Kubrick, as an individual, was an incredibly brilliant, genius-level, very thought-provoking individual, quite unusual and quite different from most movie directors I know. And so he really wanted the movie to depict some amazing things, and it was a process of very cautious distillation so that he didn't really hit the nail on the head. He was broadly conceptual and impressionistic about what he thought the future might look like, rather than being expositional and telling you exactly in detail what he thought it would be. And it left a lot of room for interpretation, and it's one of the reasons that the movie still resonates 50 years later, because it hasn't become very dated. I think you're right. I think that's why it holds up. And it's amazing that, um, and I think that this is the ultimate credit to you, that, that so many of those uh, special effects hold up. You know, you, usually a lot of times, you know, the more effects you put in a movie, the, the quicker it is to date because, you know, it's, you know those advancements come so, so rapidly. But it's amazing yeah. to look at it now, and it's, it still looks legit. It looks real. Um, let's go into a couple of them. Um, the opening shot where the camera rises up from behind the moon and you see, you know, the, the alignment of the earth and the sun. How was that? How did you guys do that one? Well, that was done on an animation stand that was flat artwork. It was a flat photograph of the of the real moon that we got from Lick Observatory. Uh, the sun was nothing but a hole in a piece of a sheet of uh, sheet metal 
with an extremely bright hot light behind it, so it was very, very bright, you know, many, many stops overexposed. And the Earth was a painting that was painted by one of the artists on the movie, and I painted the stars, and I was supervising the animation department. And that shot actually was a derivative of an earlier shot that came from a movie called Universe, made by the National Film Board of Canada, Ah. that was a very inspirational movie that was made, I think, around 1963 in black and white, all animation. Uh, and Kubrick saw that when he was developing the movie. I saw it at Graphic Films when we were working on our ideas for any space films. And um, that movie really showed what we thought was a very beautiful depiction of being out in space and traveling through the universe at the speed of a god and seeing things that were unseeable with telescopes or any other way. And uh, it was it was very, uh, you know, informative to us and very helpful to us to guide us toward photorealism. And, uh, you know, we used a lot of miniatures. A lot of things were hand-done, hand-painted. There was no computers, no computer graphics. Everything was simulated using animation techniques. And today, you know, we have a, a movie industry that's very dominated by visual effects that are done with computer graphics. Mm-hmm. And they tend to look similar to one another. And they don't necessarily age well because they're only as good as the, the kind of the algorithm of the week. Mm-hmm. And um, there's beautiful effects being done for movies. But when you shoot a miniature that's really photorealistic, it ages very gracefully. I'm with you. I think the practical effects and the you know, the photorealism is is what um, I think. A, it's not only a, a lost art, but B, like you're saying, I think I think more movies should go there. I think it'll help them hold up. Um, take yeah. take me into that the legendary cut from the the bone to the spaceship. Obviously, it's you know Chambers doing the the ape suits down on Earth, and um, and uh, you know he got his time in in Argo. He got a little shout out there with John Goodman. But um, once that bone goes in the air, it cuts to your work. The I assume that spaceship is again a, a miniature model against the painted stars. But take me into was it was it always planned like that in the script, or when, when did the idea of that cut happen? Well, the idea was there from the very beginning with Kubrick that there would be this gigantic leap, uh, conceptual leap, from the bone being the first weapon. And the, the wep- it was a weapon of survival that they learned how to use as a result of an intervention by an, an extraterrestrial intelligence. Because those Australopithecus guys were going to die unless they figured out how to get protein and kill animals. And so... There was a theme behind the movie uh, that Kubrick was very much involved in, which was man learning to survive through uh, uh, vicious <laughs> uh, conflict. <laughs> and so they're, they're using bones as weapons, and then the cut was a cut from one weapon to another. And one of the things behind all of the spacecraft that you see in the sequence following that cut is that those were intended to be orbiting nuclear weapons pointed at the Earth. Wow. And uh, they were (laughs) Chinese weapons and Russian weapons and Indian weapons and, you know, weapons from all the nations kind of pointing at each other. And when Kubrick really got that done, he realized that too many people were going to think of that as, you know, Dr. Strangelove revisited. Right. And he wanted to shy away from that. And so he never overtly said, 
or made any mention in the movie visually or any other way that those were orbiting nuclear weapons. And so the idea is not as clear as it could have been if someone had said that. Uh, but that was the intention originally, and Kubrick just kind of muted it because he didn't want to, you know, right. people to think he was a hack uh, talking about nuclear Armageddon. Yeah, but that makes the cut even better now that I know that because it's from one weapon, you know, object of a weapon to another weapon in the future. Like, that makes it even better. Yeah, uh, it is. I mean, it's really quite profound. You know, when you think about it, it's a, it's a cut that's, you know, it, it represents millions of years of time have passed in that one frame. And millions of de- years of technological development and evolution of mankind has also occurred. And it's the fact that we got to a point where we're technologically advanced enough to be ready for the next encounter with these extraterrestrials that are going to take us to the next level. Yeah, exactly. The The thing that blows my mind the most is that rotating spaceship. You know, you got the guy jogging, and it's he's he's running forward, but he's basically running on the ceiling and the floor as it rotates. Um Tell, how how exactly was that done? And then just overall, there's a the scent. You lose your sense of direction when you're watching it. Like there's, I think there's one shot later where the camera's looking down at an astronaut from above, and I think he's cli- right. climbing up a ladder. But then when it pulls back, there's another astronaut standing almost perpendicular to them. Right. So th- there is no x y axis up down left right. It's it's this whole loss of direction. I mean, I love right. that. So right. ha- how was that shot done? And also the rotating spaceship. Well, Kubrick was fascinated with the idea of weightlessness and the whole idea that there is no longer an up or a down. And um, the, the, the idea of the centrifuge was a fairly common idea of the day that you could create artificial gravity by spinning some you know, circular thing like that. Right. And so that would be a way of the, the astronauts remaining healthy and having a sense of gravity, and so they didn't lose bone loss like people do on the International Space Station today. Um, and that was, you know, a fairly common idea in the early era of Arthur Clarke or Robert Heinlein or Isaac Asimov. You know, speculations about the future would use artificial gravity as a way of maintaining life in space. But when Kubrick got into it, he helped design this entire rotating set so that the actors could just be at the very bottom of the set and walk or run but the camera could go all around, and by the camera moving and the person walking, it could actually look like the opposite. It would look like the camera was fixed and the person was moving. And so, one, you know, you could make this illusion of someone who was walking up the wall and all around the room, upside down. And it's not that that was a revolutionary new idea, because uh, uh, Fred Astaire had done a, a scene in a movie called Walking on the Ceiling. Right, right where they built a rotating set and a camera and lights and everything that were fastened to the set, so you couldn't tell it was turning upside down. Um, but it was a really elegantly and beautifully executed illusion of motion. And uh, Kubrick was a masterful photography, a photographer, as well as a writer, as well as a director, as well as a producer. And so he was able to integrate all these rather unusual ideas into how the, the style of making the movie, to, to give the audience a feeling of being weightless was what its objective was. Well, it, it totally worked. I mean, and, and the fact, it must, it must be the ultimate uh, compliment to you guys that people, 
you're, that your guys together, you and Kubrick, your special effects were so realistic that a year later when we did the moon landing, they would create these crazy conspiracy theories that you guys were able to actually, you know, pull those same effects off and make it. I mean, it, when you re- hear crazy stuff like that, do you just smile and just think that that's the ultimate compliment, that your effects in 2001 were so good that real life politics, real life people will create all these conspiracy theories? Yeah, exactly right. So there they are. I know there's there there has been and will probably still be conspiracy theories and movies, whether they're uh, fictional or documentary or whatever, trying to say that the whole thing was faked. Uh, I can assure you that it was not, and that we didn't have anything to do with that. But the fact that the movie depicts uh, a, a near future thing like. Uh, 2001 does with spacecraft and travel to another planet and doing it with the help of really terrific engineers and even uh, a guy named Harry Lange who was a protege protege of Werner von Braun who was like the master of the entire Apollo program Mm -hmm. uh, after having been the master of the V2 program in Germany during World War II Um, the technical design of the spacecraft and everything was very technically astute and believable and credible. And so even today the movie stands up and so that even astronauts and astrophysicists and uh, scientists who consider life in the universe, they look at 2001 as a real touchstone as a time where the idea of uh, man in space was taken seriously and not treated as a B-movie, you know, people killing each other or invading, you know, green alien monsters or anything. This was a a serious, scientifically valid uh, concept of the future. And that's one of the reasons the movie holds up, is the production design is very uh, specifically uh, trying to be credible and believable. And that right there is why it's the greatest science fiction movie of all time. You really put the science into the sci-fi, so I appreciate you guys doing that. Um, before Before we cut you loose, I have to ask you about Close Encounters with that big ship hovering down over Devil's Tower to the John Williams five-note score. Uh, I got, Man, I got goosebumps just remembering the first time I saw that. Um, did, did Spielberg give you a direction for how he wanted that spaceship to look? Or just explain sort of the process of, of how that was achieved and how you visualized that. Well, it evolved over time. I mean, Spielberg had his own ideas about what he thought it should look like. But one of the most interesting stories about Close Encounters is that when Stephen was writing the screenplay for the movie, he was reading the works of a French uh, writer named Jacques Vallée, who was writing about, you know, real reports of events in the whole world of UFO encounters. And Jacques Vallée was a very good friend of J. Allen Hynek, who is in the movie and who coined the term Close Encounters. And so I decided I wanted to find out who Jacques Vallée really was because Francois Truffaut, you know, the famous French movie director, was playing this French guy that Spielberg had written into the movie named Lacombe. And I found out after the fact, many years later, that Lacombe actually was Jacques Vallée. And that even though he's uncredited in the movie, he was the guy who was writing these supposedly real stories of events that had happened in the in the nineteen late nineteen forties and fifties and sixties about UFO encounters and motherships and exchanges of people and secret meetings and 
you know, what a UFO looked like and what they were doing here, and the, the little gray aliens that were four feet tall with slanted black eyes. Yeah. Um, in retrospect, I now look on, two, on Close Encounters as a movie that is weirdly a documentary. Because it's not based on someone's fictional idea of UFOs or alien encounters. It's based on true stories. That's an interesting way to look stories. at it. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to it's, look at it. It's a really weird way to look at it. It makes me, whoa, that movie actually may have much more deeper meaning than we ever thought if it's actually based on stories that have been hushed up. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. I just got goosebumps again. <laughs> awesome. So you guys, you know, obviously, and this is the last question, you guys um, you guys were doing Close Encounters, and then meanwhile, a couple, two years later, Ridley Scott does Alien, and then you were able to uh, hook up with Ridley, but I heard that you were kind of done doing the, you know, the Painted Stars. I mean, you know, you'd, you had, you'd done outer, outer space stuff a lot, but um, is it true that, that you agreed to do Blade Runner with Ridley uh, because it was a, a different from that? It was more urban-based. It was this gritty, noirish, dystopian future, and um, is, is that true? Is, is that why you, you agreed to do it? You wanted to work with Ridley on, on something different? Well, that's partly true. I met Ridley, and I really liked him. He's a he's an amazing artist and a, and a a man of terrific ideas. And he can draw, and he can write, and he can explain to you very succinctly what his ideas are. And he wanted to hire Sid Mead, who was one of the greatest futurist artists of all time. And so I thought it was a good opportunity. Uh, but I I approach all these jobs from from my point of view, which is that I write and I produce. I, I, I directed Silent Running back in, uh, in the early 70s, which mm-hmm. uh, George Lucas really liked and, and took some of my ideas and put them into Star Wars. And then a few years later, I directed and wrote a movie called Brainstorm, which is really about um, being, you know, being able to go inside human perception and mm-hmm. seeing things from a, another person's point of view. Mm-hmm. And so I write and I direct and I, I make movies myself, and I occasionally hang out doing visual effects for other directors. <laughs> and one of the nice things about it is that these directors, whether it's Steven Spielberg or Ridley Scott or whoever, respect me as a director myself. And so I often direct the you know entire sequences for them. Wow. Did you get to do that for Malik at all on Tree of Life? Was there a sequence in there that you, you got to do? Um, that was a little bit different in that Terry and I both really feel strongly that Computer graphics sometimes can look synthetic, yeah. particularly when they're trying to depict astronomical events. Right. Because it takes a massive, you know, supercomputer at a giant university to do, you know, two, two galaxies colliding with one another or something like that. Right. It can calculate that all perfectly, but the result is often somehow unsatisfactory. And... Uh, you know, Malik and I, we, we went through our early days as filmmakers back when I was doing Silent Running and he was doing his own films. And uh, we both like what we call organic effects, where you can use tanks of water and liquids and chemicals and create and synthesize certain astronomical-looking events mm-hmm. that happen at all scales. You yeah. know, nature kind of happens in miniature, in the microcosm. It happens in your cup of tea when you add milk. Yeah. It happens in the mac- in the macrocosm on a giant scale, and if you can find clever ways to happen to have the camera running when some phenomenal chemical interaction happens, you can get stunning visual effects that's impossible to compute. 
Right. Or so like and, that like that whole formation of the universe in that movie, I guess. Actually, yeah, that, so, that, that whole thing reminded me of 2001 just to bring it full circle. I mean, my mind has been not been blown since then until that movie in terms of just the epic scope of what you're trying to tell to go from from the beginning yeah. of time to the present. Like that's wow. Yeah, and 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 I think uh Terry has some of the same traits as Steven Spielberg, excuse me, as Kubrick of a willingness to experiment and a willingness to create a situation with a team of people like myself or others and give us the freedom to try to find something that no one's ever seen before and have the camera rolling when it occurs. And that's not the normal way that movies are made. Movies are very organized, they're very structured, they're very storyboarded, very planned. Every shot is budgeted out and bid out to various visual effects companies. And so there's not a lot of room for experimentation. And... uh, Terry is a very uh, impressionistic filmmaker. He often shoots without a script, even. He just shoots with a good idea. Yeah. And I like that. I like being able to see things on the screen that are unexpected and impressionistic and beautifully uh, awesome. And you don't really need to explain it. You don't need to say, oh, that's a proplet or that's a galaxy or that's gravity or whatever. People just get it naturally. Right. Yeah, I wish more filmmakers would challenge us like that. Like, give the audience a little bit of credit. You know, we're smart. <laughs> I think so. I think people are the people are very, very sophisticated consumers of media these days, and they demand a lot. And uh, it's just getting better and bigger. And I'm I'm trying to be a part of helping transform the entire movie industry to a higher level of quality, because we're we're at a, a, a kind of a crossroads right now where people don't see much of a difference between a movie and a television show. Yeah, I think that's a problem. It's, it, it's got to be a difference. Everything's becoming serialized and episodic in movies. Whereas yeah, exactly. I- so I think that uh, what, we, what one would call a movie palace has to offer a sense of spectacle and immersion and amazing uh, events that uh, go beyond anything you could see on your smartphone or your tablet or your TV set. Right, like going to see Gravity in the theater is an experience as opposed to watching it on your phone or at home. It's, it's a different exactly. experience. Yeah. 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 So I'm very dedicated to that, and I'm hoping to be a part of helping to transform the movie industry to its next iteration and getting rid of the old standards of 24 frames and sprocketed film and small rectangular screens and, and cr- start creating movies that are much more like a giant holodeck experience where it's it's very immersive and 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 you're in the movie rather than looking at the movie awesome i can't wait to that well uh that we look forward to you bringing us to that next monolith you know that'll be the next monolith in filmmaking (laughs) i'm working on it (laughs) all right keep working hard mr trumbull douglas trumbull what a treat talking the 50th anniversary of stanley kubrick's 2001 a space odyssey thank you so much that was so great okay thank you so much too bye-bye Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.
I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.